Thanks for listening to Downrange. The podcast is absolutely free. But if you want ad-free listening and early access to next week's episodes, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus. For more information, check out tenderfootplus.com. Enjoy the episode. Downrange is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you exchange gift cards, vacations, experiences, donations, or do you focus on enjoying time together? I know I do. Whether or not your family gives gifts during the holidays, you get to define how you give to yourself. And the holidays are a great time to do that. So whether it's by starting therapy, going easy on yourself during the tough moments, or treating yourself to a day of complete rest, remember to give yourself some love this holiday season. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out the brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. In the season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash range today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash range. Warning. This podcast contains adult content and recreations of battle scenes, including violence, gunshots, explosions, and graphic descriptions which may be triggering for those with past trauma. Listener discretion is advised. I was born on a basement floor in Saigon Hospital on December 17, 1974. In fact, on the morning of my birth, my mother shielded my body from incoming artillery fire. My uncles that served alongside the Americans were imprisoned in re-education camps. These were torture camps, and these were hard labor camps where they seek to break a human being and indoctrinate them into a communist ideal. If the person cannot be broken, then they would be brought out into the rice paddies and they will be murdered. Downrange. I'm Remy Adeleke. Bushido, the way of the warrior. It's a Japanese word with up to 400 years of history. It's a life of honor and virtue. It's the ancient code of samurais. The warrior I have the pleasure of introducing to you today is a modern day samurai, a man who walks the path of Bushido every day of his life. His name is Tulam, and he spent 23 years in the Army, 18 of those years as a Special Forces Green Beret. He's a soldier with extensive martial arts and close combat training, and he was tasked with going after some of the world's most wanted terrorists. He even has a Call of Duty character based off of him. If you've ever played with the character Ronin, well, that's him. 
Here's my brother in arms, Tulam, to tell you his story. At this stage of the war, uh, American troops have left Vietnam and I was born on the losing side of war. At three months old, my family was pushed out in the streets. They were looting through our valuables. The occupying force was breaking the will of the South Vietnamese people. My mother at that time, you know, she was in her 20s and she endured already 18 years of war. The American portion of the war, 10 years prior to that was the Indochina War. So my mother saw war through her whole life. If the South Vietnamese people did not conform, they were immediately brought out to these re-education camps, never to be seen again. At three years old, my mother and biological father, my brother and I, we escaped on an overstuffed wooden fishing boat. This boat probably fits comfortably 40 people. This night, we're jamming over 100 people onto this boat. You know, we went down to the lower deck of the boat. My mother told me it was dark, and all you can hear is the sound of people crying. You know, people were desperate. Families were ripped apart. Families were murdered. And then we got into the coastline of Malaysia. Now, the Malaysians would forcefully stop us. Um, they did not want to receive any more refugees. And they forcefully stopped us by gunpoint. They anchored in our boats and drug us back out into the ocean. They cut the lines, shot the motor, and they left us there to die. What was a two-day journey turned out to be now is a desperate survival situation. People were dying. They were starving, and the dead bodies were uh, thrown over the boat. People were drinking their own urine, and we were down to our last bucket of water. And my mother um, woke up my brother first, and she gave him a bucket of water that she um, was managed to put outside to gather the, the rainwater. And she asked my brother to wake me up, and she gave me the remaining water within that bucket. She put us back to bed, and she told me, you know, crying in the dark, she drank her own urine. My mother told me that, you know, we got caught up in a storm. These waves were so massive that it could just crashed us, killed us that night. She lost all hope as she prayed one last time. But somehow, my mother said we made it. She saw the sun come up and it would peace, peaceful sea that morning. And then she said later on that night, there was a light that came through a crevice of the boat. And my mother grabbed me, and, and what this light was, it was a, uh, actually it was a Russian supply boat coming out of Vietnam, and, and it found us. They could have killed us, they could have looked at us like the enemy, but this crew chose humanity. And they rescued us. They dropped us off at Indonesia at a refugee camp. It's a plot of land in the middle of the jungle no food and there's no water there. You, you, you have to live off the land, you know? Man, it was hard. It was a hard life. You know, people were murdered. People were drugged out in the jungles, raped, killed. It was a desperate survival situation. It was a lawless land. My aunt, you know, she married a American Special Forces Green Beret when, during the war. And he was a lieutenant and he was an American. He made my mother promise if she escaped and we were to survive this escape, that we need to do what we can to become Americans. 
because that's the land of the free. So my mother, she made this promise. So roughly a year and a half, you know, my uncle, the Special Forces American Green Beret, he funded our paperwork to get us over to America. After a year and a half, we came over to the United States. Tu and his brother and mother traveled via a small fishing boat from Vietnam to Malaysia. After the Malaysians left them there stranded, they were rescued by a Russian supply boat. From there, they were brought to an Indonesian refugee camp. By the time the Vietnam War ended in 1975, there was a spike in discrimination against Asian Americans and immigrants in the U.S., especially towards Vietnamese individuals. When we first came to America, you know, it was my biological father, my mother, my brother, and myself, and we live with my uncle and my aunt, and he was an American Special Forces officer, so I never lived in such a nice home. I never had food every single day, and I was trying to climatize myself to this new environment. I was in Fayetteville, North Carolina, which is outside Fort Bragg, which is the biggest special operations army base in all of America. That's the home of the special forces. And I was raised in a small town right outside that base. More commandos in that town than all through the United States. My uncle was one. So I lived with my uncle, you know, and I didn't know what he did or whatever, but I saw all these awards and plaques and, you know, and I was like, wow, that's really cool. And during that time, we were about to start school. My mother always told me, you know, we needed to go to school, we needed education, because she said, an education is your key to freedom. Because if you have an education, you can never be oppressed. So I need you to try in school. During that time, it was very racist times. It was post-Vietnam War years. The Vietnam War was not a popular war in American history. And I was the symbol of that. I was living with my uncle, and you know, my mother took me to a grocery store. And I was so happy to just spend a day with my mom, you know, that day. And my mother smiled, and she was so happy because we were not starving for the very first time in our lives. And it was so much food. My mother, she put the food in the grocery cart, and, you know, we, we checked out, and we walked up to the car, and there was this guy, and this old man came up to me. He grabbed my shoulder, and he yanked me and spit in my face, and he flicked my mother off, and he told my mother to go back home to our country, and we don't belong here. It definitely hurt her. This treatment was repeated in school. I was called by many racist names. I was told by my teachers I don't belong here, that I was a refugee and they don't support the refugees in their hometown. And because of the opinions of the teachers, it, it allowed the students to go ahead and the green light to pick on, on me. My Vietnamese name is Tutong Lam, you know, and a lot of people can't pronounce my Vietnamese name, that native name. So I say two lambs, so, you know, people don't butcher my native name. But on this up to teacher day, it's up to teacher try to pronounce my name. And this triggered the bully to call me all sorts of racist names. And all the other kids flicked me off and threw paper at me. It got so disturbing that so the teacher told the bully and myself to go down to the principal's office. We were being destructive to the class. And I didn't understand why. I was just minding my own business. 
office and the principal told us that our, he's gonna call our parents and that we needed to sit here until our parents came and pick us up. Well, the bully's mother first showed up and she asked the principal what happened and the principal said, your son called that boy right there a chink. She walked over to the corner and grabbed her son and she walked over to me. She stood there and she said, my son is right. You don't belong here. And you need to go back to your country. I didn't know what to think. You know, I didn't know what to do. I just started crying. I got tired of being this scared boy. I promised myself that I'm stronger than hate. Eventually, my, um, my mother and my father, they divorced. Like any child, divorce is hard, right? And I was eight. So I saw my father leave. Eventually, my mother met a American Special Forces Green Beret. He was uh, an ex-drill sergeant. He was Special Forces, you know? He was a very strict man, but he was very, um, had a kind heart. He brought us in, and eventually my mother married him, and we lived with him, but it was a very strict upbringing. That meant that 4.30 in the morning, my brother and I would have to get up. And we had to put up the American flag, and we had our hands over heart. I had no discipline, you know, living with my biological father, barely surviving. I had zero discipline. And going from zero discipline to 4.30 in the morning and this level of regiment was very difficult and I struggled. And I tell you, I missed my, my biological father too. I was eight years old, you know, I was doing my homework. My mother came in and she uh, had this cardboard box in her hand and she told me, she goes, this is from your father. You know, I was hurt by that time because I never heard from him in so long. And, you know, and here he is. There's this box, and I remember this box. And inside this box, it was uh, four VHS tapes. And they were all written in Vietnamese. They were dub tapes. I just randomly pulled out one tape, and I stuck it in the VCR. It was called the Art of Budo. It's the combat side being samurai. It's the study of the martial arts. I'm like, wow, samurai. What is that? The way to live a life of purity. And I remember watching this tape over and over every single day. The way, Bushido. Every time I would go home, I would watch it. You know, I was being picked on, I was being harassed and bullied and calling all sorts of names. I didn't have any friends, so 11 years old, my uncle picks me up, this colonel, special forces officer, picks me up and he wanted to spend uncle and nephew time, takes me on a car ride. He must have knew something was wrong with me that day. Because out of blue, he said to me, he goes, you know, too, there will be days when people say that you don't belong here and they're going to spin in your face. 
there's going to be days where you're going to doubt yourself. And you need to ask yourself in those days, do you want to be a fucking commando today? He said, you know, too, your bones are going to ache and you're going to walk this heavy load and you're going to ask yourself that day, do you want to be a fucking commando? The days that it's cold outside and it's raining and you know you need to get up and run this 10 miles, but the bed is so comfortable. You need to ask yourself, you want to be a fucking commando? A life of discipline, a warrior's life, a higher purpose, to free the oppressed. Downrange is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you exchange gift cards, vacations, experiences, donations, or do you focus on enjoying time together? I know I do. Whether or not your family gives gifts during the holidays, you get to define how you give to yourself. And the holidays are a great time to do that. So whether it's by starting therapy, going easy on yourself during the tough moments, or treating yourself to a day of complete rest, remember to give yourself some love this holiday season. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out the brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. In the season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash range today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash range. My mother would uh, drive me across town, you know, and she, and she would drop off food to the needy, to the other refugees. And I remember telling my mother on the way home one day, I said, Mom, why did we, why did we spend our whole day driving across town? They don't even appreciate you. She stopped the car. And she told me one thing that obviously stuck with me today. She said, you know, son, if we can, we must help others. And in doing so, we create a better world. Those were the two things at 11 years old that defined who I was going to become because I knew during that time, I knew what the Special Forces was. It was the freed oppressed. It was the freed enslaved. It was to travel around the world and fight for the defenseless. And I knew if I was able to be this warrior, then that's the way, that's Bushido. The day of my graduation, my mother, she was so excited. She made uh, food for us and she was gonna celebrate, you know, I was graduating from high school. She was so proud. And I remember I was holding my little sister. I walked across stage, you know, and I got my diploma and uh, she waited. We were in the parking lot and then uh, I went to my mother and I told my mother this. I said, mom, you know, I love you and I appreciate everything you've done for us. And you sacrificed so much for our freedoms, but I have to go. I have to leave. And she said, what do you mean? I said, you see that guy staying in by his car? And she goes, yeah. I said, that's a recruiter. He's going to drive me to the, the bus station tonight. I'm leaving tonight for training. 
and she cried. And I remember telling my mother, I said, Mother, you sacrificed so much for our education. I promise you that I will have an education. I promise you that I will finish college. You know, I know that means a lot to you. And she said, okay. And, you know, I left for basic training that night. She never wanted this life for me. Her whole life was war, you know, and she knows how it feels to lose in war and the families and the sacrifices of war. And she didn't want that for me. And here I am chasing the path of Bushido. My first date, I reported to the Parachute Infantry Regiment. I was 18 years old. And I was so proud to be a soldier. My uniform was so sharp. I, I remember getting up early to make sure everything, my boots were shine. I was so proud to be a soldier. And that was my first date. I had to meet the command and all the other privates. So I showed up and obviously I'm, I was, I looked the sharpest, right? I, I took pride in the uniform. I was so proud to be a paratrooper. I remember the first sergeant called us and he got us all in the formation. He said, you guys are a piece of shit. You so-and-so don't know shit about the army. And he yelled at us, uh, made us do push-ups, told us that we we're nothing. And, and I remember the commander, he was a captain, he came out. Everybody snapped to attention. I'm like, whoa, I snapped to attention. I looked at him and he said, I have one question. Who wants to go to ranger school? And I just quickly looked around. Nobody said anything. I said, I want to go to ranger school, sir. And he looked at my first sergeant, he said, first sergeant. And then he walked back into the building. The first sergeant dismissed all the other privates. He said, Private Lamb, stay. It was nine o'clock that morning, you know. Seven o'clock that afternoon, I was still in that PT field. My hands were full of blood, sweat, uniform ripped from doing PT and low crawling through dirt and gravel, mocked, yelled at, told me that I ate shit. He stood me up, he asked me, Private Lamb, what do you want? I said, I want to be a fucking ranger. Like Tulam, I'm of the belief that all dreams are attainable if you, one, set realistic and incremental goals, two, create a logical plan and work in contingencies. And three, above all, maintain discipline. I'm not just speaking this from something I learned in a book. I'm speaking from experience. When I first joined the military, I couldn't swim, but I had the burning desire to become a Navy SEAL. And so I had to one, set realistic and incremental goals. I did that by purchasing a logbook and drawing out columns with dates and desired swim times that I wanted to meet by those dates. I didn't set astronomical goals like wanting to swim 500 yards within 10 minutes in a week. I set incremental goals, and I followed that plan to a T. First it was Remy, by this date, just be able to get to the halfway mark of the pool. And then by this date, let's be able to get to the other end of the pool. And then by this date, let's be able to get from one end of the pool to the other end and back. The second thing I did was I created a logical plan and worked in contingencies. What was my plan? Shift my schedule around so that I can get to the pool at least three days a week. What were my contingencies? If it rained, still show up. If I was tired, still show up. If I didn't have a car, which I didn't, run those three miles to the pool and get back. And finally, I was disciplined, which to me was the most important ingredient. I showed up three to four days a week. Whether I was tired, whether I was cold, I showed up whether I worked a long shift at the hospital, I just kept on showing up. I didn't let my feelings dictate to my mind what I wanted to do. 
I let my mind dictate to my body what it needed to do. I maintain discipline. And within six months of checking into my command, I got my acceptance letters into SEAL training, and I eventually became a Navy SEAL. I did a lot of training that a lot of privates, a lot of people my age and my peers didn't do because I was so driven. I had something to prove it to myself. I got tired of being this weak human being. So I pushed. I made my promise to my mother. So even though in the military, I would push, I would go to night school and I would study to one o'clock in the morning and I'll go to bed and I'll wake up at five and I start my day again and I'll do it again and again and again. And um, I made the rank. A year and a half, I made E5 and I applied for the Special Forces. At 20 years old, I put in my packet for the Special Forces Assessment Selection. I know we started off with 480 students. We selected 86 students. Team week is the hell week of the Green Berets. Very physical demanding obstacles. You're moving things that weigh 400 pounds. You're moving as a team things that can weigh 800 pounds. Just the rugged terrain, swamps, the worst conditions. And at night you don't sleep, you do academics. So I was sick and we are doing advanced land navigation. The Special Forces land navigation course is one of the hardest in the world. And I remember it was raining that night. It was storming that night, right? And, and I was uh, shivering. And I had a hundred, over a hundred something temperature and I was sweating, I was cold and you know, I wanted to quit. The mindset to quit was there. I said to myself, I would die here tonight. So we navigated and somehow I made it through that day. So by the time I made it through all the Special Forces training, I got to the Special Forces teams when I was 21 years old. 21 years old, here I am, you know, a young, fired, cocky, green beret, you know, I made it so fast. Here I am, free or the oppressed, right? So I showed up to Japan, so proud to be a Green Beret, you know, so I stayed up all night, you know, pressing my uniform and shining my boots. I was so proud to be a soldier. So I showed up to the Special Forces. I knocked on the door, a guy opened the door, looked at me, I said, hi, my name is Tulam, and I'm here. My first day, he slams the door in my face. Another guy opens the door, hi, my name is, he slams the door in my face again, right? So I stood there and prayed rest all day long in front of this locked team room that won't let me in, you know? And finally, at the end of the day, the team started lets me in. He goes, so who are you? I said, oh, my name is Tulam, so-and-so, and they scuffed my boots. And they told me I wouldn't shit. Told me I'm nothing. And the team started told me that you have no job, you have no desk. You're not gonna be here for long. So the next day I showed up, I didn't have a desk, so he told me my job is to clean the team room. So I would come in on the weekends, I would strip the floors, I would buff the floors. I made sure that I did the best thing I could. Even though I was being mocked and made fun of, I pushed it and I became the best. And then eventually I was on a combat search and rescue team, which we, our mission was to come in and rescue down pilots in case they get shot down in North Korea. North Korea was a big concern for us back then. Even while Tu was running covert missions abroad, he prioritized his education and took great lengths to do so. Green Berets is a term for the United States Army Special Forces, named after their distinctive headgear. They're trained specifically for these nine mission types, unconventional warfare, foreign internal defense, 
direct action, counterinsurgency, special reconnaissance, counterterrorism, information operations, counterproliferation of weapons of mass destruction, and security force assistance. I was a student of the martial arts. I wanted to fight. So I practiced martial arts, you know, not only in the special forces where we had to like conduct raids, ambushes, kick in doors and conduct close quarters combat, you know, hostage rescue, that wasn't good enough for me. After work, I would go and fight. You know, I would train jujitsu, I was full of fire. I was driving across town and I saw this tough man contest. It was on a Marine base. I'm like, what's that all about? So I come in, these Marines are fighting. And I asked the, the guy, I was like, hey, you know, I'm in the Army, can I fight? He goes, yeah, this is open to all services. So I did. And I fought every week. And it was so good that there was a Japanese fight promoter that came up to me and he said, would you be interested in fighting in matches off base? And I'm like, yes, <laughs> I would, because I'm a student at the martial arts. And one of my first matches, we showed up in this abandoned building, right, fighting. And I put two and two together and I was fighting in these underground matches. And eventually I was good enough where I fought in a match called the Budokan. So the Budokan is kind of like, you're getting semi-professional here. I'm on a special forces team fighting on the side. All the special forces guys and the Navy SEALs, they would get hurt fighting in these cage matches. So there was a memo put out by a two-star general saying you won't fight in these cage matches anymore. And I was due to fight in the Budokan. And I asked my captain, can I fight? And he said too, this is your career. And I'm like, can I fight? And he goes, I don't know about this. You do what you do. And he supported me. So I trained, right? I was running through the jungles. I was a guy who runs underneath the water with a boulder, you know? I was in physically fighting shape. And then my pager goes off. And we got forward deployed into the jungles of Malaysia where we had to do counter-terrorist operations. So in the jungles, can you imagine rat-infested hangers, eating like crap, hunting down bandits? So all of us got sick. And when I got redeployed back to Japan, I had three days before I fought. I had 101 temperature, I had diarrhea, I was vomiting. And then my medic told me too, don't do it, don't fight, man. You're fucked up, don't fight. All I heard was, um, do you wanna be a fucking commando today? So I showed up. And here I am in the dressing room, I told my medic to go ahead and uh, put an IV to me. So I come out. And I'm usually 205 pounds, but I was like 185. My body was just really horrible coming out of the jungles. And they're sending in a pancreas champion to shut me down because I was up and comer. So they sent him, he was this champion. He was this great fighter. And he flew in from mainland Japan and um, we fought. And he beat me <laughs> really bad. You know, it made me reflect on, on my life that night. and. Um, it made me realize I had to more training, so I did. And I fought more in Japan, and uh, eventually uh, I was in Thailand, and I was fighting in Thailand. There was this sergeant major, and he was part of the special missions unit. That's a tier one unit in the United States military. 
And when you fight at that level, you're the elite. And it's very hard to get in these units. You know, you have to be asked. So here I am, you know, 24 years old, fighting in these matches, in these cage matches. And this sergeant major comes in and uh, he sees me fighting this Muay Thai match in Thailand, this Thai boxing match. And I won that night. He gave one of my teammates a business card. That business card was for me to fly out to Fort Bragg and get interviewed by a tier one counter-terrorist unit, a premier counter-terrorist unit. So they did, they flew me out there. I was uh, recruited as a hand-to-hand -hand combat instructor. And I, I went there, I taught hand-to-hand -to, -hand to a top tier military special forces. And eventually I was asked to do combat rotations over in Iraq to augment because they knew I was a Green Beret. After that, I, I came back and I transferred to a very covert mission within that unit heavy reconnaissance working with the agency at that national level. I was part of um, a specialized team where we'd go around the world and we would hunt down the most um, wanted terrorists in the world. I was the eyes and ears of one of the most lethal direct action counter-terrorist units in the world. In the early 2000s, the U.S. military entered Africa to combat terrorist groups. Two was among those soldiers. And uh, I remember when Libya fell, I felt that we need to affect, you know, the continent of Africa because Bakar Ram was a terrorist organization that was rising within that region. And Africa was my only continent that had no operational experience. So being a warrior, being a ronin samurai, I needed to go and fight. So I volunteered to go and stand up a counter-terrorist unit within the Horn of Africa. Went there, uh, went into Libya. We, we did our missions in Libya. Protected the former president, Obama, in South Africa. Did numerous operations throughout the continent of Africa. And this is where I met darkness, depression, drug addictions, no purpose. I was so heavily addicted at one point where I would have one extra opiate pills or two extra opiate pills in my coin pocket just in case I needed to feel a certain way at a certain time. I went on my day going from, okay, do I want to feel this way? Then I take this pill, I want to feel this way, I take this pill. And I found what I found was that it masked a lot of my emotional pain from war. And I became heavily addicted because of it. I was on it for eight years. Long-term effects, it just numbs you from the world. You just don't care. You don't care about life. You don't see the beauty in things anymore. I was extremely successful in entrepreneurship and starting off my company, but I was still depressed. You'll feel good for maybe that five minutes, but that's no way to live. The opiates numb me so much that I didn't care about myself, and if you don't care about yourself, then how can you give love to others? So I pushed away my wife. I pushed away everybody around me, and I hated myself. You know, that day when I walked down to my office and I pulled that book by Miyamoto Masashi and said, all your love, all your, your thoughts and all your emotions is within. Look nowhere else. 
when at that time I was pulling the way that I should feel off of a pill. So I was looking for everywhere else but within. I looked in the mirror and I remember walking up to the mirror, I remember this, and I looked in the mirror and I said, I hate you. And I opened up the medicine cabinet and every, all this medicine was fine. It was antidepressant, it was opiates, it was sleeping pills, it was all sorts of crap. And I took it all and I had this rage in me, this fire. So I dumped all the pills on the toilet and I flushed it. Worst mistake I ever made, let me explain why. <laughs> because for eight years, I built this um, wall, a dependency on a chemical that basically blocked I don't know the realities of the world. I dumped them all down the toilet. So that chemical wall wasn't there anymore. The weight of the world. My whole life came crashing down. I was broken. And my body ached from the muscle sores, from the addictions, and the tremors, and the vomiting, and stomach cramps. And through meditation and cleansing my body and fitness, I slowly crawled myself out of that addiction hole. Discipline. A word of a ronin written in a Buddhist cave in the Book of Five Rings, Miyamoto Masashi, the ronin breaks down in the teachings of Bushido into five elements and anything in the Asian culture breaks down the elements of nature. So you have fire, which is the teachings to meet your enemies without fear, a fearless life, one of courage. Then you have water, one of balance and serenity to form yourself and to mold yourself through the evolutions of your life. And then you have wind to sit and to see the future through intelligence. And then you have ground to ground yourself in knowledge and power. And then you have void, which, which I found at the end, void is darkness, it's emptiness. Three years later after reading that, my wife and I flew to Japan and I meditated in that Buddhist cave where that book of fire ring was written. I said my words to Misashi and I closed off my chapter in the war years. So Miyamoto Masashi, he breaks down the teaching as a samurai and Bushido into these five elements. In the teachings of fire, I was full of fire. I was full of life. I was, I was a student. I was fighting. I was engaging in combat. At that stage in my life, I concentrated as a martial artist, as a warrior, on the physical aspects of what it takes, the physical aspects. I made peace in that cave. And when I surfaced out of that cave, I became Ronin. Ronin is a masterless samurai. During war staying periods in Japan, a Ronin is shameful. But to me, a Ronin is an individual, masterless. I'm my own master. What does it mean to me to have a Ronin character on Call of Duty? It's crazy that that dark space, that dark room, that vision of who I wanted to be, the name that I put on myself now <laughs> is a character that people can play. People know me as Ronin. They come up and they say, oh, hey, Ronin, can you sign this, <laughs> you know? 
It's surreal, but I tell you, it's humbling. It's humbling because my words can affect a 12-year-old boy. A 12-year-old boy was being bullied, and his father reached out to me and said, could you FaceTime my, my son? And I gave him the same words that I gave myself. You need to ask yourself, are you stronger than hate? So that's what Call of Duty gave me, an opportunity to help others. People talk about Bushido and they talk about the way. I mean, that's, that's what I give others, this voice. So Call of Duty allowed me that, that opportunity to affect children. Kids that are like, you know, gosh, man, 11 years old, like when I was trying to find my path. And his father contacted me and asked me to speak to him. And I told him the same thing that I asked myself when I was eight years old. Are you stronger than hate? You know, and his, his answer, so cute, this little boy, 12-year-old boy, he say, yes, sir. And um, then I said, then there's your way. Then that's your path, young man. Call of Duty allowed me that platform. There's a voice in me that talks to me every day when I doubt myself. Tells me you have a purpose and that purpose is driven by action. I, uh, I get lost on the maps. I don't even know how to pick my guns. I don't even know how to start the game. And then when I get started, I get killed within you know, a few seconds, you know? Everybody always say, hey, hey, T, what's your logon name? You know, and I, I'm too embarrassed to tell my logon name because I, I get killed really fast, you know. <laughs> Running's a, a cool journey. We were just there in the Hollywood, working with them again. So it's uh, all my martial art movements is being put onto the game. All my, all my gun fighting, my tactics, my move, my footwork. Everything is being recorded on this game. And I was telling, you know, my wife, I said, is it me or is this so real that I'm kind of time capsuled in a way? You know, where they're taking my peak performance as a commando, those skills that allowed me to be this modern day samurai. And now they're putting into a entertainment world, right? So in a way that's really surreal because these are real movements. These are, Lethal. They have that tight black suit and then they have these motion sensor beads that they put all over and the guns and everything. So um, it's really cool because it's truly my imagination and those are my movements, you know. So uh, it's really cool to see it played out in the game. You know, it's a process with those guys, but uh, it's, an, it's an incredible journey and I, I love those guys. Today, Two runs his company, Ronin Tactics, and helps train military and police in the way of the Ronin, the masterless samurai. And that title, Ronin, is the one used for his character on Call of Duty. Two's journey is inspiring. Not everyone overcomes the adversity he faced with such grace. Instead, Two used each setback and hardship as fuel to become the person he wanted to be, the kind of warrior he is today. He told himself over and over that he did want to be a commando and during his quote unquote fire years was able to help the oppressed and enslaved. He was able to become the Ronin he wanted to be, a masterless samurai who dictates his own life and helps the people around him. 
Again, I'm Remy Adeleke, and this is Downrange. Thanks for listening. Downrange is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Telegraph Creative. Our hosts are former Navy SEAL Remy Adeleke and former Army Ranger Rich Chapa. Our senior producers are Meredith Stedman and Mike Rooney. From Tenderfoot TV, executive producers are Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. From Telegraph Creative, executive producers are Cliff Sims and Darren McBurnett. From Extreme Concepts, executive producer is Landon Ash. Co-executive producer is Remy Adeleke. Produced by Eric Quintana, Tracy Kaplan, and Jamie Albright. Dramatization casting and directing by Greg Cooler. Sound designed by Cooper Skinner. Mix and mastered by Cooper Skinner. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Additional production by Christina Dana. Marketing and branding by Telegraph Creative. This episode features the song Fire and Smoke, written by Benjamin Rubino, Bo Steele, and Stacey Stavola, performed by the band Steele courtesy of Fire River Records. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer from UTA, Ryan Nord, Jesse Nord, and Matthew Papa from the Nord Group, Beck Media and Marketing. Visit us at downrangepod.com or on social media at Downrange Podcast. Thanks for listening. Downrange is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you exchange gift cards, vacations, experiences, donations, or do you focus on enjoying time together? I know I do. Whether or not your family gives gifts during the holidays, you get to define how you give to yourself. And the holidays are a great time to do that. So whether it's by starting therapy, going easy on yourself during the tough moments, or treating yourself to a day of complete rest, Remember to give yourself some love this holiday season. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out the brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. In the season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash range today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash range.